My name is Arv, and I usually make an appearance at the Sunday sets, but I'll be here um, tonight because Tim is away for the next month on retreat. And so he asked me to do this sit for him, and Tuwari is taking over for February after this. So you'll, you'll be with me tonight. Um, it's nice to see all of you here, and it's nice to see all of you online, too. So welcome. So we're continuing our month, our three months, really, on taking refuge in the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha. And so what I wanted to focus on today was bringing the act of taking refuge uh, a little bit into our daily life. And as context, I should confess that I've always had a little resistance in the past to just the words, taking refuge in the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha. I talked a little bit about this two Sundays ago uh, for the few of those who are there who I could see here. Um, but to get into it just a little bit, there are a few parts to this. One is the notion of taking refuge. Those words, I, I think I just have an instinctive feeling that, you know, it feels like I'm hiding. And I feel like this practice is something where my energy is about coming out. My energy is about really sort of exposing myself to whatever I'm really going through. And so I had to rethink, of course, you know, this was, this was an early reaction. And of course, you know, we don't really mean that when we're talking about taking refuge. We're talking about finding support. But when I think of the words taking refuge, I really prefer to think of, first of all, reminding myself, you know, of why we're doing this. So in that sense, this taking refuge in the Buddha, Dhamma, and Sangha is a spiritual practice connected to so many other spiritual practices and so many other religious traditions. There are so many traditions in which there is some ritual that we go through that reminds us while we're all here, right? It, it's why we're here. Why did we begin this? So I think of this as an active reminder. Why did I, why did I begin this practice? Why do I do this at all? That's what taking refuge is to me now. And that's why we do it at the beginning of every year, right? It's part of ceremony. We're trying to renew our energy for this. Why did we come into this? It's also about finding support and resources to continue along the path. And that's a bit of what, what, I, what I want to speak about today. Um, what do we need resourcing for? You know, why do we need these reminders of what the path is about? So we do this because the path can be hard. Um, and I'm going to talk about three different. So the way I'm going to structure this, you know, sometimes we structure this as like taking refuge in the Buddha. We're going to talk about that. The Dhamma, we're going to talk about that. The Sangha, we're going to talk about that. I'm instead going to structure uh, the talk today on some of the things that uh, we can encounter along the path. And ways that we can use this act of taking refuge, of reminding ourselves of why we're here, of resourcing ourselves with the Buddha, Dhamma, and Sangha, to kind of get over those humps, to keep ourselves going. So one whole category of these things is life's hardships, right? External events, things that happen to us that can throw us off the path. So what happens when life gets hard, right? So take a moment even, just, just, you know, feel into how we react. You know, maybe you're going through something right now that's hard. Maybe you can remember a time when, when life through challenges. What happens to your practice? What happens to your path? We can react in a, in a variety of different ways, but... You know, what often happens to me is I get swept away, at least in the moment, by stories in my mind, right? The stories can be really powerful at hard moments. And I don't know, have you ever found that you meditate less sometimes at times when you need it more? I find this all the time. Like I, I actually, um, very early in my practice, I remember um, uh, 
there was there was a guru who um, who was advising me. So I was in grad school at the time. It was it was a really particularly difficult and busy year of grad school. And this guru was like, well, if it's really busy, you should spend an hour every day in meditation. And I was like, <laughs> there is no way I have an hour to spend in meditation right now. And he tried to convince me that if I spent that hour, it would actually just make the rest of my day easier and I would actually get more done. But I was like, no, <laughs> I'm not going to do this. It just feels too hard. And it took, this was, this was a long time ago and it took many years for me to realize that he was probably right. Um, it probably would have actually helped me. And I'm not asking anyone to spend an hour, but even 15 minutes, right? You know, that can really help orient us. Um, and yet I still find that it's sometimes the hardest thing to do to sort of stick with this path when things become hard. And it can be busyness in our lives, but it can also be something of real emotional charge emotional content that really pushes us and, and tells us a story. You know, we can feel under-resourced when life brings hardships. We can just feel tired, exhausted. We don't have the energy to continue with this kind of practice, you know, or sometimes it can affect our whole mood. We can become cynical. We can become less optimistic. You know, it's harder to believe that we can come out of low spots and that this path can even help us, Right. So what helps? What can we do in these kinds of moments? So one thing we can do, and this is taking refuge in the Sangha. We can see who else is with us on this path, right? Hopefully you have friends or people you trust who are here with you doing this, working with you. If you have those, you know, connect with those you can relate to. You know, who've gone through maybe something similar to what you're going through. You know, talk to them. And also see those who've come out on the other side. See that they come out on the other side. Another form of sangha is just our community, our people, those who love us. Feel into the resource of those who love us, right? And it also, it might be nonspecific the way we tap into sangha. You know, we can sit and meditate and we can simply feel connectedness sometimes, right? Have you ever had that feeling where you just feel more expanded and you feel connected to that around you? It doesn't have to be people. It can be nature. It can just be humanity. It can be something vaguer. It can just be tapping into this knowledge that we're not sitting alone, right? Another resource for hardship is the Dhamma, right? We've all, and one, one aspect of the Dhamma, there's so many ways to look at we're taking refuge in the Dhamma. And one of them is just that we have our own experience, right? We have our own wisdom that we've cultivated through practice, through life, through just going through things, right? And we've gone through hardship before. There is this thing that I just mentioned earlier, right? About hardship, which is that it tells you the story that it's not going away. It tells you the story that it's here to stay in this very convincing way sometimes. It's, and, you know, and of course we react the opposite way to, you know, feelings that are good. You know, sometimes we can have a good feeling and then immediately, sometimes my reaction at least is, well, what's wrong also? What do I need to be paying attention to in this moment? I couldn't just feel good, right? That's dangerous. So we have that opposite feeling sometimes about things that feel good or we, we sort of dismiss them anyway, right? And things that are hard, we pay a lot of attention to. If you've ever done something that you've received feedback for, suppose you got 10 emails and nine were just glowing and one wasn't. Which one are you going to pay attention to? Right? Which one's going to dominate your thoughts? So we do this. But we also know that in the past, whenever we felt anything difficult, it has passed. We can rely on that. Right? There's actually a poem that, uh, that I really love that I want to read. It's by the poet Judy Brown. And it's called The Trough. There is a trough in waves, a low spot, where the horizon disappears and only sky and water are our company. 
And there we lose our way unless we rest, knowing the wave will bring us to its crest again. There we may drown if we let fear hold us in its grip and shake us side to side and leave us flailing, torn, disoriented. But if we rest there in the trough, in silence, being in the low part of the wave, keeping our energy and noticing the shape of things, the flow, then time alone will bring us to another place where we can see horizon, see land again, regain our sense of where we are and where we need to swim. Yeah, so this is the Dhamma, right? You know this. And I love this point about time, right? Sometimes all we have to do is wait. So another piece of Dhamma, this is kind of me personally. I often turn to the advice of Pema Chodron. I'm sure some, several of you are familiar with her work. She has this one book I love, which is When Things Fall Apart. Um, and this is a quote from that book. She writes, feelings like disappointment, embarrassment, irritation, resentment, anger, jealousy, and fear, instead of being bad news, are actually very clear moments that teach us where it is that we're holding back. They're like messengers that show us exactly where we're stuck. Each day, we're given many opportunities to open up or shut down. The most precious opportunity presents itself when we come to the place where we think we can't handle whatever is happening. It's too much. It's gone too far. There's no way we can manipulate the situation to make ourselves come out looking good. That's being nailed by life, where you have no choice but to embrace what's happening or to push it away. So there are a couple of things I love about that quote so far. Um, she's talking about these places where we're absolutely cornered, right? We're, we can't escape. And when we're faced with these points, right, she's saying this, this is actually a really good point for us. This is a real, this is a point for growth. This is kind of the thesis of her book in a way. And she's also saying we have a choice. We can either embrace what's happening or we can push it away. And she goes on to say this. She says, what's encouraging about meditation is that even when we shut down, we can no longer shut down in ignorance. We see very clearly that we are closing off. That in itself begins to illuminate the darkness of ignorance. We're able to see how we run and hide and keep ourselves busy so, we, so that we never let our hearts be penetrated. And we're also able to see how we can open and relax. So I find this a very hopeful message. She's saying, you know, we have this choice when we're stuck in corners, when we're really nailed by difficulty to push it away or to really turn towards it and embrace it. And she's saying, even if we push it away, even if that's the choice we make, even if we don't feel like we have a choice and we have no choice but to push it away, we're still all right. <laughs> We've still learned something from this. Just if we can observe that we're there, if we can just see that this is what's happened, we came to this corner and then we said, no, we pushed it away, right? This brings us closer to a moment when we could potentially embrace it. We're just getting closer, right? So I find that a really hopeful message. So I want to talk about two other categories of challenge that we can meet in our path. And the first is doubt. So there are several kinds of doubt. We often are doubting ourselves, right? Am I really meditating? Am I just a fraud sitting here? 
how many of us have had that thought? <laughs> right. Or this mindfulness isn't working, right? It's just not, this isn't catching. It's not working for me. Am I going in the right direction? Maybe a big picture thing, right? Like, where am I headed with all this? What's going on? So these are very alive in me. So what helps here? I'm going to start by talking about refuge in the Buddha. And there is an irony to this because I had a lot of doubt for a long time that I could take refuge in the Buddha in particular. I had some resistance again to this idea because the idea of taking refuge in a historical figure challenged me for a long time because it feels a little like reverence. And I'm a little, again, I, I just have a hard time with reverence of the human, you know. Um, so that was a hard way for me to personally take uh, refuge in the Buddha. I, I talked a bunch about this a, a week and a half ago, so I'm not going to belabor this point. But there are a few other ways in which refuge in the Buddha really shows up for me. Sometimes it's in stories. So I'm going to tell. So there's the story. There's the particular story of in the Buddha's life of Mara, right? We probably, this is one that comes up a lot. So Mara is this figure who shows up all the time in, in Buddha's progression, pre-enlightenment, before his moment of enlightenment. Uh, Mara is throwing all kinds of challenges in the Buddha's path, right? You know, and, and it's, it's all in an attempt to thwart him from enlightenment, or is this, this is what it seems like, you know, or to challenge or test him. There are temptations, right? You know, Mara really wants him to, you know, be a rich businessman at some point. And he throws like, you know, temptations of lust at him um, in, a, in an attempt to move him off the path. There's, I think there's a sea of arrows, you know, there's, there are arrows being thrown at the Buddha by Mara. And, you know, the Buddha meets each of these challenges. Uh, but his greatest challenge, Mara's greatest challenge is presented on, you know, right before the Buddha's moment of enlightenment, on his night of enlightenment. And he approaches, he approaches the Buddha and he says, who do you think you are? Who do you think you are trying to do this thing, this being enlightened, you know? And, you know, we can all touch on this kind of self-doubt, right? Who are we to do this and really think we can get all of these benefits from it? Who can, who are we to get enlightenment, right? How can that be something available to us? So this is self-doubt. And how does the Buddha deal with Mara? This is what I really like about the story here. So, you know, on the night of enlightenment, you know, the Buddha touches the earth and receives confirmation that, you know, he really is worthy of this. But it's later on that I really like. So Mara keeps showing up in the Buddha stories. Like, you know, the Buddha will go and he'll invite a bunch of disciples for tea. And Mara will show up and come in through the back, kind of noisy and boisterous. And, you know, there's a story where his attendant Ananda gets really nervous and like tries to say, hey, you really shouldn't be here. Remember the, pro the part you played and trying to knock the Buddha off his path? You know, that wasn't very cool. And, you know, I don't think the Buddha really wants to see you. And Mara's like, are you saying the Buddha has enemies? And Ananda's like, oh, wait, I can't. No, um, no, I wasn't saying that. And anyway, Mara, Mara gets his way in. And when he comes near the Buddha, inevitably in these stories, the Buddha is like, Mara, come sit, have some tea. He really turns to Mara. He turns to this representation of self-doubt. He faces Mara and he invites Mara for tea, right? I love that story, you know? It invites us when we see doubt. You know, we don't give in to it, right? You know, we don't let Mara have his way and thwart us from the path. So we're showing a little backbone here to Mara. But neither do we push Mara away, right? The thing this story tells me, right, is we don't, we don't become hard on ourselves for feeling the doubt. We don't push it away. We welcome it, right? We sit with it. We befriend it. And this is, this is advice we learn in the Dhamma for for all of our challenges, right? Can we befriend them? 
So the story of the Buddha in particular, I find it a really nice reminder of how we can deal with doubt. We recognize it. Oh, okay, here's doubt. It's come. You know, I don't feel worthy of this. I don't think I'm actually meditating as I'm sitting here. Here we go. All right, let's welcome this feeling in. Let's feel it in our body. And let's befriend it. Sometimes that even means asking us, asking the feeling, asking the doubt why it's there. What are you here for? What have you come to do? Sometimes it's just sort of letting it sit aside if it's really insistent on its message and saying, all right, you're welcome to sit here, but I'm not going to give you the microphone. You know, I'm going to put you to the side and focus on what I need to focus on. That's another tactic. So another thing that I find helping in the image of the Buddha or refuge in the Buddha when it comes to doubt. Well, okay, to tell you about this, I kind of have to paint an analogy. So I have this thing in my mind. I I love to work with visual analogies for the practice. And one way I think of this whole path, this this whole process we're all in together, is it's kind of like being in a rowboat in the middle of the ocean. This is the image that comes to my mind. Um, And to me, refuge in the Buddha, refuge in this notion of enlightenment or an enlightened mind is like seeing a lighthouse, right? So we start off, we're in the ocean. We want to be out of the ocean. We want to get to land. We may not even know if there is land if all we've ever experienced is being in this rowboat in the ocean, right? That's all we know. And if we see a lighthouse, we see some example of a person who's become enlightened, right? And it doesn't have to be the Buddha or the historical Buddha. This could be an example of a person who has qualities you admire, like Buddha qualities. This could be yourself at some point in time, either sometime in the future This could be your future self, or you could remember a moment in the past when you really had access to the spaciousness you need, right, to go forward in your practice. You might remember moments like that. And it's a lighthouse. It's a place where that tells you, it's a light that shows you there is land and also which direction it's in. We know which way to paddle when we see that, right? So that's the analogy in my mind. Um, that I work with. And so, so the Buddha as a lighthouse is kind of one of my strategies here. And I'd like to actually take a moment, yeah, I think we have a little time, to do a practice with this. So if I could ask you all to close your eyes for a moment. The invitation is to bring to mind an image of someone who is awake, a figure that is awake, could be an enlightened being, or just a person who is fully alive and present. You could also bring to mind a memory of yourself at a point in time when you felt fully alive and present. And place that person in front of you so that you're sitting across from them. And just let yourself Feel this energy of aliveness. Let yourself be bathed in this awakenedness. What does it feel like to be in the presence of someone fully awake? What is it like to tap into your own ability to feel that presence? 
to feel that aliveness and awakeness. All right. Yeah, so just being in the presence of that kind of awakeness, you know, whether it's something we feel we're currently capable of, if we can remember it or we can remember an image of it, it can really help. We can bathe in that. So in the last point, we talked about external hardships and doubt. I want to also note that mindfulness itself is hard, (laughs) right? Sometimes the, the challenge of the path is the path. So there's that line in the poem I recited or the reflections I recited during our meditation. It's kind of a startling line. It's, it's what Ajahn Chah says, right? You know, I, I recited this poem and it goes, you know, do not try to become anything. Do not make yourself into anything. Do not be a meditator. Do not be, become enlightened. When you sit, let it be. When you walk, let it be. Grasp at nothing. Resist nothing. But then there's this last line, which is kind of a little startling, right? We've been hearing this. We're getting, we're internalizing this message of letting things be. And then he says, if you haven't wept deeply, you haven't begun to meditate, right? Someone told me that line early in my practice in this, in this lineage. And it, just, it was like a splash of cold water, <laughs> you know? And I don't know if we should take it so literally as you haven't begun to meditate, right? We're all here meditating. We should believe that we are. And it's true that we have been. But there's this point to be made. And it really stuck with me when I heard this. I was like, oh. Because at the point when I heard that, like, I had never, like, started crying in the middle of a meditation. My meditations, this is pretty early on in this mindfulness practice for me. And at that point, I had only had these pretty rosy experiences. And it felt really good when I'd started meditating. It felt like release. It felt, it was all, I don't know, it started off all roses for me. And hearing that, I was like, oh, wow, I have a long way to go. <laughs> um, but there's something in there, right? There's something, there's a point that we often come to in this practice where it becomes very hard, where we become in touch with these things inside us that are difficult, right? You know, we also come in touch with the joy, but there's, we can come in touch with hardships, with, with past traumas, with moments that have been difficult, things that are ways we've been behaving all our lives, Right? We face our own behaviors. We face the ways that we treat others. When we can see these things clearly, when we can stop telling ourselves stories, sometimes there's some unpleasantness there, right? So what helps here? What can we learn from the taking refuge in the Buddha, Dhamma, and Sangha that helps? So I want to point there, there are a lot of things I could say at this point, but I want to mention specifically the practice of loving kindness, the Dhamma of loving kindness, and in particular, self-compassion. So I used to tune out anytime I heard loving kindness come up in any of these speeches. I was like, all right, here we go. <laughs> and, you know, it actually took my noticing that I kept turning away to realize there was something there, right? There was something stuck in me that didn't want to turn toward that. And then there was a point, you know, I, even after that, I would talk a lot about the importance of loving kindness in my talks. And there was a time when I all, I did that, but I rarely actually practiced it myself as a meditation practice. And I'm coming to be better about that. I'm actually practicing loving kindness practice metta more often and kind of knowing I'm, I'm slowly developing you know, this sense of when I ought to tune into it, what's a right moment for it. And I think this is one of those moments when we find the difficulty in ourselves, when practice itself turns up these, these challenges within us. I want to mention also, you know, for those who are like me, sort of like, yeah, okay, loving kindness, you know, there's actually the, the scientific evidence base for meditation and its, ba- its benefits to wellness are strongest 
with this practice. There is the most convincing evidence. There is the strongest effects for practices of self-compassion and gratitude, and even calling up love for others. These are the things that over time have shown to improve people's lives the most. So if you're, you know, that helped me at least feel like, okay, maybe there's something to this. And we know something about this too, right? Love buffers us. We know this. When we feel into our capacity for love, and sometimes it's easiest when we're exercising that capacity to others. We're thinking of a loved one, a child, a pet, someone we've known, a parent, whoever it is um, that we can feel love for, or whatever it is, nature. When we tap into that love, we, we feel supported, we feel resourced. Imagine if you could show that to yourself now, right? You're kind of giving and receiving at once. It's especially powerful. And so I do want to take a moment. Oh, it's 8.20. Okay, we can do this. We can do this. Before we break out into groups, I do want to spend a moment on a self-compassion practice. So once again, close your eyes and imagine now that sitting across from you is some being that you can love in a simple way. This doesn't have to be the person closest to you or the most complicated relationship. Pick something simple. Pick someone simple. This could be love for an animal. It could be love for nature. It could be a young child or someone whom you can really tap into that feeling of love. And allow yourself to feel that love. There's a feeling of warmth. You might even curve the edges of your lips upward in a half smile. Encourage that kind of sentiment forward. Feel the feelings of that love. There is a softness. There is a spaciousness sometimes. And now imagine for a moment that you're looking at yourself sitting across from you through the eyes of a close friend. So you're sitting across from yourself, regarding yourself as a close friend, someone you would care about, someone you would naturally feel compassion for, someone you want good things for, you wish them well. And imagine wishing that person love, compassion for their hardships. Ultimately, we do all love ourselves. And if we can see ourselves as a separate being, the way we would treat someone who are like us, it can help to bring out this feeling of compassion. I wanted to spend a little time. I feel I'm a big believer in these breakout groups. So I'd like us to divide into groups of, let's see how many folks are here. Yeah, okay. How about groups of three or four, right? Those in the room, find people around you, find someone maybe you haven't spoken to, and get into groups of three or four 
on Zoom, we'll go into breakout groups. And here's the question that I have for you. In case you need a question, if you're filled with things to say from this talk, great. Just go with that. But if you need a prompt, the prompt is, what keeps you going, right, on this path? You've come here. You're here today. You're on this path. What keeps you here? And if you're new, what are you looking for that would help you keep going? What would make you keep going? I'll just let everyone return to their seats who's here in person. All right, so we have time now for questions. And I wanted to open it up. Uh, let's start with the folks online. So this is for questions or comments, anything anyone wanted to share coming out of either the groups or the talk. Of course, if you're talking about something from the group, uh, just being mindful to keep uh, to keep any comments that were made uh, to folks within your group, just within the group, and not share anything anyone else said directly. Okay, I see Matt Bailey. Yeah. Hey, Art. Hey, Matt. It's a little echoey. Is it better now? It's a little echoey. Back oh, I have to mute myself. Thanks. Um, I had a question for you. So I think uh, this was from the quote, I think it was from Things Fall Apart about, um, you know, you can turn towards the thing or you can turn away from it. But once you've kind of even started this practice, I guess, um, even when you turn away, you know, you're doing that and it's kind of different than it was before you started. And that really resonated with me. And I've noticed that a lot as I've been doing this practice for a little while at, you know, even when I fall into, you know, like an unskillful habit, I can see, okay, I know this thing and like, I imagine, I don't know, five or 10 years ago or whatever, like I was doing the same habit and I probably didn't even know that it was like a, that thing before. I was wondering, um, you know, the goal, you know, of increasingly hopefully turning towards things. Do you think having that capacity is just, you know, increased practice of like eventually it just kind of happens where you're able to turn towards things more and more? Is there some more like act, more active and intentional way you need to like turn towards it? Um, so I need thought on that. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so I can speak to things I've been told and, and a little bit from my experience. It is a matter of opening more and more to your experience with practice. You know, we start, when I started doing this practice, for me, it was breath, just breathe. <laughs> you know, and that was hard enough to pay attention to in the expanded body. We expand to thoughts and emotions. We sit on retreat, right? Um, there's sitting here in Sangha. There's sitting in personal practice. There are times when we can spend even more time and we can go deeper, right? We can go for day-long retreats, weekend retreats, week-long retreats. At some point in our lives, depending on our obligations, maybe, maybe month-long retreats, right? Um, as we get to still ourselves more, and we still ourselves by both prolonged practice, right? Those, those multi-day practices and also just by sitting with this longer and longer, right? If you have a daily practice and you're doing this every day, you know, it's not a straight path up. You'll have moments where you feel, you know, months, weeks sometimes that you feel less mindful, like things are going down. But over the course of time, right? Things are sort of gradually, you're able to still yourself more. You're able to access more of your experience. When you sit, as soon as you close your eyes, you're able to tap in a little bit deeper. So we do come to the fullness of our experience through both repeated practice. You know, I've heard people say that everything you do, everything you need in this practice can be accessed through the body alone, right? Just staying with the body, everything comes your emotions come, you know, everything to work with is there. And then I've heard people say that it really helps them to turn directly to the emotional body, to turn directly to thoughts, to access even more subtle layers of our experience. 
you know, sense of your own vitality, sense of what, you know, keeps you alive. Another whole dimension to expanding practice is connectedness, you know, accessing our connection to other people, accessing our connection to something larger. And that could be sort of a common mission for humanity. It could be the earth and nature. Um, so there are these dimensions in which we can grow outward with practice um, over time. And as we do this, we're, all, we're ultimately accessing different parts of ourself, right? And sort of in the nature of Tama Chodron's book, we are becoming intimate with, we're becoming familiar with all these parts of ourselves, all these dimensions to existence, to reality, uh, to our own internal reality. Yeah, and ultimately making peace with all of that. That's her goal. Yeah. Does that does that come at your question? Yeah, definitely. Thank you. Yeah. Maybe I'll turn to the room next and see if there's anyone who has a question in the room. If so, you can sit in this chair and pull up that microphone there. I'll do my best to work the magic where we turn this to you. <laughs> Um, thank you for um, thank you for everything from tonight's talk, the quotes and the references to books. Um, I think this is this is connected to Matt's question, but it 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 sort of I think gets to. Yeah, thank you for that question. That's a great question. So in these moments when things are hardest, how can we access the wisdom? Right, because it can be overwhelming in that moment. We've all been at these points, right, where. You know, whatever we're going through is so with us that there's nothing else, right? We don't feel spacious enough to step out and access the whole of ourselves, the whole of our wisdom. So sometimes it helps to access just the simplest pieces of this, you know. When we feel something, can we can we feel it in our body? Can we turn? Uh huh. Sorry, I think that the question is weird as well. Oh. Oh, did did folks hear the question itself, or did I did it get muted when I muted? Oh, okay, okay. So when I muted myself, it also muted that mic there. I'm learning. Um, I hope I'm going to paraphrase your question correctly. So the question had been, uh, with reference to the poem I read, The Trough, when we're at the bottom of a trough, uh, when, when we're in those moments where, you know, the wave is just above us, we can't see, we're overwhelmed by what's going on in our lives. In those moments, it can be really hard to access the Dhamma. It can be really hard to access all of this wisdom that we might remember at other moments in our lives when we're feeling more spacious and more resourced. What can we do in those moments? Is that, is that inaccurate? Okay, great. Um, and so one solace in these moments is they pass, right? All things pass with time. We, we come out of these moments. We may not think we do, but we do. Everything changes. So even if you can touch nothing, if you can just wait, right? We know that we come out. Sometimes that is actually just the deepest wisdom. Sometimes even if we can touch on the Dhamma, maybe what we remember is I've been through this before. I've had this feeling and it has passed. It's gone away eventually. Another thing we can do that it does require a little bit of dhamma access, but it's, it's a little easier than some of the higher and loftier wisdoms. Is just feeling what we're feeling in our bodies, right? Um, and that's what I'd begun to say, I think. It can, when, we're caught, when we're caught in the mental component of what we're feeling, that's when we often get swept away the most. We can really get carried away by the stories of what's happening. And if we can just remember to feel it physically, right? For almost any emotion, for almost any, for any emotion, there is something in our bodies that feel it, right? An emotion is a feeling. It is something that is accessible in our body. Can you find it? And often it's very clear. Sometimes it's harder, but if we can find it in our body, 
and just feel it there and be with the thing in our body, it can take away some of these other dimensions, right? You know, there's the story of all the arrows we fire at ourselves, the second arrow story, right? Something hits us and causes pain and we follow it up by hitting ourselves with a second and third and fourth arrow and causing ourselves more pain, right? There's that story. If we can stop ourselves from throwing those second and third and fourth arrows by just not, not getting carried in those stories, sometimes we, we gain access there, right? I think the Sangha helps here too. You know, if we can access those people in our community, right, who are wise, who can just listen to us, right? And there's a choice here, right? It's said in this Dhamma, you know, to choose good friends, to choose spiritual friends, right? So we know the friends that are going to help us and we know the friends that aren't, right? And if we can just have enough wisdom to go to those people, you know, I think that's often all we can do in those moments, right? Yeah. Does this help? Yeah. Okay. All right. I think we have time for a couple, one more round. If we can go back to folks who are online, if there's any other questions there, you can raise your hand on Zoom. Is there any other question in the room? Yeah, please come here. I'm going to turn this towards you. Hi. Hi. Can everyone hear me online? Um, So when you mentioned embracing the difficult feelings, I have to imagine there's some nuance there, right? Because... When you say the Buddha embraced, um, what was his name? Mara. Mara. Mm-hmm. He didn't embrace him by saying, oh, you're doubting me. You're right. Like he didn't embrace the doubt, right? He didn't like right. play into it. And likewise, like you probably wouldn't suggest someone embrace resistance, right? There's sort of a paradox there, right? Mm. So what is that nuance? What is that subtlety? And my understanding and correct me if I'm wrong with my way of reasoning it is that maybe there's a difference between the sensation around there's like a pain there's a there's a there's a fear yeah and you just observe that versus participating yeah but that that's just my theory I want to hear your, your perspective yeah, yeah thank you um, the way I would put it, here, I'll turn it back to me so it's not always pointing at you. <laughs> I think what I would say is, is not so different from what you said. When we talk about what we're embracing, we're embracing the fact that we're experiencing a certain thing, right? Oh, here's resistance. Here's doubt. Here's, you know, a feeling of self-loathing, whatever it is. Okay, this is here. I'm not going to pretend by embracing it. We're, we're not pretending it's not there. We're turning towards it. And by befriending it, what we're doing is we're inquiring a little bit why it's there. We're trying to get some softness around the feeling. Let it expand. Let it take up space even sometimes so that it can express itself and tell us why it's there. You know, I think of these as sort of messengers sometimes, right? It's there for some reason, but you're right. We don't listen to its stories. That's the way I would put it. You know, a lot of these tell you stories and they tell you things about yourself and about other people. And we're not here to listen to the content, right? We're almost playing psychologist here with the, you know, So, you know, the doubt comes in and it tells you a big story and you're like, okay, yeah, that's the story. Well, what's underneath this, right? Like what, what's really going on? Sit here, be welcome. And I want to get to the bottom of why you're here. What's troubling you? You know, it can even be, 
I mean, personally, I almost personify these feelings sometimes. <laughs> like, okay, it comes with its own personality, its own charge, its intentions. It's there for a reason. Um, we need to understand it. We, we, don't, we don't get anywhere by pushing it out of the room, right? Although I want to say another thing, which is sometimes feelings can't be reasoned with, at least right away. And it is wise in moments, not only to not listen to the story, but to kind of put it in the waiting room, <laughs> right? To say, okay, I'm here to practice right now, or I'm here to do something else. I'm here to feel what all is here. And as long as this feeling is in the room, it's just going to take up all the space, right? So that is one instance in which we might just say, not now. And there's another really important instance, and it is trauma. When we touch upon trauma in our lives, right, when that, that can come up in meditation and the wisest thing in those situations is often to put it aside and to work with it in more specialized ways, right, where we really, you know, we, we have help <laughs> with working with it and getting close to it and touching it. So we may not, we might identify something as trauma. We may also just know that something is just too hot, right? It's just too hot to work with right now. It's not something that any amount of listening to it is helping with. It's just not working. And then we put it aside. So it's kind of like setting a loving boundary and saying, all right, you're here, but not now. Yeah. Does that help? Yeah. Yeah. So I'll just end with an offering of metta. So if we can all sit together for a moment. May we meet our own suffering with compassion. May we awaken to the truth of who we are. May all beings and all suffering in the world be met with compassion. And may all beings awaken to the truth of who they are. Thanks, everyone.